Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Council Cast. This is Brandon Saxton. And Katie Gordon. Thank you for listening in, as always. Uh, Katie, how are you today? I'm doing pretty well. I heard some interesting news about a new comic book movie, so that's always exciting. I hope you're not going to talk to me about DC mo- or uh, Marvel movies. Jeez, <laughs> a little slip of the tongue there. I heard this as well. Harley Quinn movie. That's I'm pretty it. excited. Yeah, standalone film. Uh, from what I understand, going to be produced... I don't know if that's the right word... By the actress who plays Harley Quinn, whose name I know how to say exactly, but I'm not going to, because I don't actually know how to pronounce her name. Do you know? Is it Margot Robbie? Is that it? I, I never know so. if I'm saying her first name right. I can't guarantee that that's that, what it is. Maybe she can call in after the show we'll and let her. us know. Yeah. Or we'll call her, yes. No, yeah, so Harley Quinn movie, pretty excited about that. I don't know if we talked about it either, but uh, Deathstroke was confirmed as being in the Batman fil- standalone film as well. And they also confirmed the actor who's going to be playing him, who... I'm not very good with names of actors, so I don't remember the name, but I was excited anyways. Was it an actor you were familiar with? Um, I, I think I'd seen him in some other okay. movie, but I, I really am bad at knowing the names of actors. So I, it was someone who I recognized It was someone who face. you didn't despise. Someone who I didn't despise. So that's a right? good step so in the right I'm direction. <laughs> and I think Deathstroke is such a cool character, so I'm excited anyways. I know the portrayal of him in the hit wonderful tv show arrow was really really great i thought and even though arrow has certainly uh has a jaded fan base at this point i'm still a loyal fan so i'm i'm sticking to it i I, i'm kind of getting off topic i love arrow and i love deathstroke and i'm excited for batman cool and i'm excited about this harley quinn movie too i mean i'm also excited about the batman movie but that it should be interesting and i should say we talked about this a little bit before when we talked about suicide squad but i I thought that this portrayal of Harley Quinn was one of my favorites, the one that they had in Suicide Squad. I thought what they did with her character was really cool. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I think I think I've already kind of hit all the main points as well in the Suicide Squad episode, but I thought it was great too. So, so what should we talk about today? I think uh, I think we we so a topic that we've talked about a little bit in the past, or at least hinted at in previous episodes, I think is what we're going to be talking about today, and certainly a topic that I think is worth addressing with its own episode. I do think that it's worth warning some of our fans who tune in for maybe more of the comic and geeky stuff. It's going to be lighter on that today, maybe a little more heavy on the psychology, which is just, you know what, sit back and relax and enjoy the ride and get some of that good, good psychology knowledge. It's coming right at you. That's right, and you never know what kind of connections we might make as we talk to Absolutely. Since we always have that kind of nerdy stuff we on all, the brain. It's always on the brain, and, mm-hmm. I, and I might even blurt out things like Batman just out, out of nowhere just to keep those folks dialed in. I appreciate that. I think that'll be good. Absolutely. So, well... Oh my gosh, so I introduced the topic without actually saying what it was. That was really amazing. You well, started with a couple of disclaimers. I did. So disclaimers now have been disclaimed. Mm-hmm. Uh, here we go. So what we're going to talk about today is kind of clinical science or psychology as a clinical science just kind of broadly. And maybe uh, touch on a couple of different things. We'll see where we go. But just kind of how do therapists decide what treatments they're going to use um, what are some of the treatments that, I mean, how do we decide what treatments do work and what ones don't work, maybe even some that have been shown to cause harm. And then, uh, yeah, I think we'll just kind of jump off some of these few topics and, and see where uh, where this crazy road takes us, <laughs> where this wild adventure goes. <laughs> this has been a, a really interesting topic for us, I think, lately, just within some of the people that are in our program and things like that, because a lot of 
the students work in different settings and so we're able to see different approaches that people choose when mental health professionals pick how they're going to try to help their clients and there are definitely different schools of thought on Mm -hmm. that. Would you mind outlining a couple of the different ways people select? So really I think it boils down to just kind of two big schools of thought. Uh, that you kind of see in in the area. So there are some folks who are trained kind of in the the, uh, school or train of thought that our program is based in that we make those decisions on what sort of treatments we use based on the most empirically supported intervention. So just kind of saying, so we have this individual with this specific diagnosis that we reached uh, using some sort of uh, clinical interview and using the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual as a guide for reaching that diagnosis. And we kind of dive into the scientific literature and say, so we have the specific diagnosis. What are the treatments that are best shown to work for someone with this specific diagnosis? And this is the approach that if you've read our blog, you've seen mm-hmm. that we take in our post. So recently, the most recent post is about Dwight Schrute yep. from the office, mm-hmm. and there was a pattern of behavior that was detected through watching the office. And so this assessment would be closest analog to behavioral observations. Mm -hmm. You're just watching someone, you're not directly interviewing them, you're not giving them questionnaires. And then you're coming to a conclusion about what diagnosis from the DSM best describes or captures what's going on with them. And then from that point, the clinical scientist model, Mm -hmm. which we can talk a little bit more about, the idea is that you look to the literature to see what has evidence in terms of treating that diagnosis. So the diagnosis for Dwight Schrute that was speculated to be obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, Mm -hmm. and so knowing that, what you do is look into the literature for treatment evidence available for that specific disorder. That's one approach to choosing a treatment. Absolutely, and then there's kind of almost uh, a complete... I would say maybe an opposite approach or certainly a differing view um, of folks who really think of therapy as a a lot less scientific and maybe a lot more like an art form, I think is maybe the best way to describe that. And what these individuals say or kind of the approach that they take is they kind of look at therapy as being very hard to capture empirically whether or not it is or is not working just because individuals are so complex and so varied um, that they really take a more of a clinical intuition approach to treatment and kind of say, so you have to meet with this individual and think of them as an individual and uh, kind of tailor whatever the treatment that you think is going to best fit for this person and the uh, specific problems that they are facing. And so in that way, it's a little bit different and relies a lot more on clinical intuition and uh, clinical judgment than really relying on the scientific literature. If I captured that, I I feel like I always miss parts of it when I'm trying to explain it in a a, a easy and brief. Of course, it's a a very complex and a big problem or a big uh, sort of debate. So I'm is that a simple way of putting it? Would you agree? No, I, I think that that I think that what you've said is correct, and I think maybe even to add a little more detail to that, sometimes the way that that pans out is that therapists are trained in specific types of skills or treatments that are their preferences or their competencies, and they might apply that treatment. So, say they were trained in cognitive behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. or that's their way of viewing things regardless of the diagnosis, they may do that treatment, or it could be any treatment or acceptance and commitment therapy. And they find a way, they figure they're strongest in that, and that maybe that's the best way to approach their clients. And Mm -hmm. so you can understand just looking at that, Mm -hmm. what the rationale is on both sides of that. And then there are, of course, people in the middle, but I would Mm -hmm. say that best represents the two maybe ends of the spectrum. I would agree, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think we've kind of 
showed our hand a little bit here that we're kind of of the camp of relying on the literature to decide on what treatments that we want to use. So for folks who are kind of thinking about treatment like us, where can we look for these? Uh, where can we find, you know, I mean, the scientific literature is huge. Maybe you're on a time crunch. You can just dive in and read all the articles. Uh, and, of course, folks who attended our Nerd Night know that I already have the answer to this question. Where can we find uh, what's the most research-supported treatment? So the Division 12, which is Clinical Psychology of the American Psychological Association, or APA, has a wonderful website which we'll link to, and they summarize each of the disorders and, well, many of the disorders and also what the research-supported psychological treatments are for those disorders. And maybe now's a good place to just take a step back and say how research-supported psychological treatments are defined because there are a lot of different ways of doing research. There are people who do research that are more based on things like clinical observation. Some people would consider that some form of of research that they're watching the people. There's more qualitative research. Um, there are case studies. And then that kind of goes up to things like randomized controlled trials, which we can talk a little bit about, and meta-analyses. And mm-hmm. I'm throwing a lot of jargon at you, but we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more. So the idea is that the APA Presidential Task Force on Evidence-Based Practice came up with a document that was published in 2006, and they came up with a hierarchy for determining what were the standards by which you could tell if a treatment was effective. And so they list when they list treatments, they show them in terms of the level of their support based on the types of studies that have been done on that treatment and what the results were. So to briefly summarize some of this, In order for a treatment to be considered well-established, there have to be at least two well-designed experiments conducted in two independent research settings by two different research teams. Mm -hmm. And so it actually takes quite a bit to get into that well-established category. It's hard for a treatment to get into that. If you want to know more details about what they mean by things like well-designed, these are things like making sure there are tight controls, that um, you're using assessments that have... Good measure, have good properties to them. For example, you're using questionnaires that are well-established mm-hmm. measures of the construct. So, for example, if you're doing something on depression and you pick a well-established measure like Beck's depression inventory, that's considered more highly regarded in the scientific literature than if it's something where you made up a couple of questions. Not saying that doesn't have value, mm-hmm. but there are different levels in terms of that. When you have a measure that's gone through a lot of study and a lot of different people have used it in different settings, and they find the same thing, that is considered there's more confidence in the science base behind that. In addition, in order for it to be well-established, the idea that different research teams and different settings are testing this treatment is important because if you had only one group that kept finding their own treatment working, you might wonder if it only works in that setting or was there some bias that led to that? And so the bar is pretty high to get into a well-established treatment. Underneath that, there's probably efficacious, possibly efficacious, experimental, and does not work. And so some of the in-betweens does not work and well-established are things where there's, there are fewer studies on those things. So experimental, for example, would say the treatment's being used, but it's not studied carefully. When we say something doesn't work, that means it was tested in well-designed studies and it hasn't demonstrated positive findings or it's made things worse. 
So maybe just to kind of recap here. Mm-hmm. So kind of what we're laying out for folks is, is there's kind of a spectrum when we're talking about evidence-based practices or assessing um, different treatments using evidence-based techniques. There's a spectrum of that goes kind of from well-established all the way down to does not work. And there are kind of different levels that you can look at a certain treatment for a certain disorder and just see how well does the research kind of say that it works, just to kind of sum that all up. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. that's, I think that's really important because... The other thing is that I teach and talk about this stuff a lot, so I want to make sure that we explain it in a way that that all of you who maybe haven't had as much experience in the field, that it makes sense to you. So I appreciate that. Oh, absolutely. I know that's just speaking personally. That's one thing that I do quite often is assume that people are working with the same experience slash background knowledge that I have. So I try to be really mindful of it. So So if if you have questions about anything that was said, always feel free to contact us. Oh, absolutely. And we can clarify. I do think it's worth maybe mentioning just an example of what a well-designed study might be, just to have an idea of how that's conducted if you're interested. And basically, there are a couple of characteristics, which I'll just summarize. One of the main things is randomized sampling. And that means that when people enter a treatment study to try a new treatment, they are randomly assigned to be in treatment A or treatment B. And the reason that's really important is because if people are selecting their own treatments or if the experimenter running it is picking who goes in which group, you can't trust that those findings are really due to the treatment. It could be due to other Mm -hmm. things like selection of treatment and stuff like that. And then the idea is that once they're randomized into the two groups, to make those two groups as similar as possible except for the treatments that you're testing. So the idea is to have very similar conditions except for treatment A and treatment B. And then you measure over time whether treatment A or treatment B was most effective in decreasing the symptoms. So that's a a general summary of what a well-designed study might look like. Absolutely. And so, again, if you go to this link to the research-supported psychological treatments, it'll, it'll lay out the different levels of evidence for each of those treatments. And so people, sometimes people don't use these, and what is usually their argument against, or what do you think some of the reasons people don't do this? Well, I think it kind of goes back to kind of that piece I said before. I think there are a lot of, maybe not a lot, but there are certainly some individuals who think that you just can't capture whether or not a treatment's working empirically. Um, and I think it kind of boils down to this idea or thought that, um, you know, on an individual level, things are just really complex and there's a lot more to the picture than maybe just a simple reduction in symptoms or something like that. And maybe it has something to do more with interpersonal problems or uh, increasing vocational distress or something going on that way. I think that's maybe a lot of what I've seen. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's great. And I wanted to kind of return to that because the way that we lay out these experiments, that's personally appealing to me mm-hmm. to have have an idea that people are randomly assigned and you're using good measures, you're assessing them over time. Because to me, I trust that more than um, human judgment has a lot of flaws in it Mm -hmm. and we're not the best at determining things, myself included. We learn about a lot of the common errors that people make. So science to me is so appealing because it allows for the humility of looking at the evidence rather than I'm just going to make decisions on my own based on what I feel. However, like you're saying, there is another group of people that just says, I don't think what that experiment that you're doing is relevant to what I'm doing Mm -hmm. every day in my life. And so those are kind of the two positions on that. And we will introduce that, but maybe not go into the depth that it's been. However, there was an outstanding Science Friday episode 
on this very topic with experts on bo from both camps, and we will link to that. And, and if you're interested in this debate, you can certainly hear a lot more about the different ways that people approach picking treatments. Absolutely. So check that out in the, uh, in the little text blur below. So Katie, we've got the empirically supported interventions, we've kind of have this spectrum of that goes from treatments that work really well, treatments that we think kind of work, treatments that we don't know yet, and treatments that we know don't work. What about treatments that maybe do harm? I think that's maybe a part, uh, a part of psychological treatment or maybe just broadly treatments that we don't talk about or maybe folks just aren't that aware of. Yeah, I, this is something that I think sometimes people are skeptical about therapy. There are many people Absolutely. who are skeptical about therapy altogether, but usually it's assumed that at worst it's just not going to help the person, mm -hmm. or if it helps them, maybe it's, I don't know, a placebo effect or just by chance or something like that. What's not as commonly recognized is that treatments actually can do harm, and there are a number of different ways they can do harm. So Scott Lillianfeld wrote this classic article in 2007 called Psychological Treatments That Cause Harm, and he said in the, the medical field there is the well-accepted phrase, um, first do no harm. Mm -hmm. The idea that you prioritize not hurting people over helping them. Helping them is extremely important, but at, at best, leave them the same as where they yes. started. And outlines a couple different ways that treatment can harm. It can directly make the symptoms worse for an extended period of time, but it he also says, which I think is really interesting, is one harm that it does is if you're doing a treatment that's not effective or that's suboptimal and the person's not getting better, then the harm is done in that they're missing out on the more effective mm -hmm. treatment. So they're withstanding suffering for a longer period of time. And so he talks about what are called potentially harmful treatments and tries to identify what some of these specific types of treatments might be. I think uh, just thinking out loud or thinking about some that maybe are more commonly known in kind of the general public. So, of course, there are some that I think are maybe more known to folks who have kind of an experience or, or exposure to the sort of the psychological literature. Uh, what comes to mind? Maybe rebirthing therapy, mm -hmm. something like that. I fire, I'm pretty sure someone actually died from who was yeah. involved with rebirthing therapy. But maybe things that are a little more um, accessible to the general public, like uh, the D.A.R.E. program, for example, or maybe um, sort of like a boot camp or something like that, or scared straight sort of programs, those sort of things. So uh, scared straight, of course, maybe just to get, I think most people are familiar with it, but certainly folks like us who are fans of The Office are familiar with it. Um, uh, Michael Scott does a little scared straight with Prison Mike, and he has this whole thing that he, he Do does. Do the impression. I, I don't know if I can. There's too much pressure now. Our millions of listeners will judge me. But uh, so I, I can't. There's too much pressure. But pr I'm here to scare you straight. <laughs> there it was. He, he does, it's I really so, channeled him. It's so good. I love uh, I love The Office. I don't love scared straight programs, though. Yeah. But I do Important distinction. Yes. But I do love that they show one on The Office. But yeah, so these are just kind of examples of some of these things where, um, like, maybe, for example, the D.A.R.E. program, uh, I don't know, is the D.A.R.E. program still implemented in schools? Yes, so this okay. is really interesting. When I teach this stuff, I I always ask the students in my class to, if they had D.A.R.E., or and, and some of them say that it is in some schools. I don't know how okay. widespread it is okay. or anything like that, but it seems like it is still being used. Okay. And, the D.A.R.E. program is interesting because, of course, it's supposed to prevent drug use, but what this 
Lillian Feld article, which I which we'll link to for sure, um, shows is actually that people who ha go through DARE programs tend to have increased intake of alcohol and other substances, including cigarettes, as compared to those who don't go through it. Mm -hmm. So it's actually making the very outcome they're trying to target more common. They're uh, trying to reduce it. Which is so, I mean, I think interesting. And, and I mean, I, I think it's hard for people to wrap their mind around a little bit because I think the D.A.R.E. program is, seems really intuitive and really well-intentioned, of course. So I think that's probably one reason why uh, it's still being used, despite there being literature that shows that it's not only not effective, but actually kind of results in exactly what they're trying to, to prevent. Yeah, yeah that, that's right. I mean, I think it's similar with this scared straight intervention that there's an intuitive sense that if you go see how bad prison is and you're you're going to stop putting yourself at risk to going to prison, but the evidence is that it actually exacerbates conduct problems. And so what's troubling to me about scared straight in particular is that not only is that intervention used still, but it is the focus it has its own TV show mm -hmm. at this point. Um, I believe it's on A&E. Sorry, A&E, but got to call you out on this one. Sorry, A&E. And it's a reality show, and of course it makes for interesting TV because oh, yeah. they're screaming mm -hmm. at adolescents. But it's promoting this harmful treatment, and Absolutely. that's very problematic to me. I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I may be way off base here. This is just completely me uh, being unscientific and spouting conjecture. But it seems to me that this is almost a trend with TV shows, or at least reality. So certainly there are, and this could make for its own episode probably, portrayals of therapy in popular media, movies, TV, books, etc. that are inaccurate and maybe uh, just changed to make for more compelling narrative and drama. But I think maybe even more dangerous, maybe not, I would have to think on that, are reality shows. Because I think maybe people who see therapy in a movie know that maybe... Maybe they don't know that it's not real. I don't know. I have to think on that. Stuff. I don't know. I do have. It's, have you had clients come in and expect to be laying on a couch, or they're just venting and the catharsis thing? I have I had, have that. had that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not the couch specifically. Okay. I, that, I, that's Once they see there's no couch, what, that really maybe, yes. <laughs> debunks that myth. That's quickly out the window. But I, <laughs> you're certainly right in that. Folks do want to come in and just visit for an hour. That the idea is that the therapist, the therapist, is a magical person who can guide you maybe either through catharsis or insight to change things versus what some of these research-based treatments do, which involve actually learning skills, doing mm -hmm. a lot of work, um, less magic. Less magic, Less magic, yes. more work. And, of course, a therapist guides you and mm -hmm. has to form a good relationship with you, and all of that stuff is very true, but it is asking to do some specific things that are very hard and often... There are, again, people vary in how they practice, but our approach is more uh, task-oriented. You're going to try to do these tasks to meet these goals that mm -hmm. you have. Absolutely. I still might stand by my conclusion that I think maybe reality-based shows that portray therapy are maybe more dangerous than mm -hmm. that. I, don't, I might be wrong, though, but this is just my gut response, and that's because what you have on these shows are supposed professionals who are actually quote-unquote psychologists or psychiatrists who maybe people are then are going to buy their books or, you know, seek out more resources from these people after they see them perform, quote-unquote, therapy or an intervention on a TV show. I don't know. That could be debated, I guess. No, no, I but. think you're absolutely right. These are people with degrees and their license. Yes. I mean, at least if it's fictional, you can say, okay, that's not based on anything. But it's reasonable to think that people who are licensed and have degrees yes. are practicing effectively. And so one example 
of this. So even if they are, I should say, there have been a couple examples. There are some pluses to having reality shows if the treatment is effective. So mm-hmm. there is a show on MTV called The OCD Project, and uh, David Tolan, a, very, a great psychologist, was doing exposure and response prevention mm-hmm. for obsessive-compulsive disorder, which is an evidence-based treatment, and it was great because a lot more people saw it than Absolutely. would have not seen it. And thank you for pointing that out. I feel like I was being a little harsh on, on reality TV. I think you're going based off the majority, though. Uh, yes. And honestly, one one thing that has come up, so Dr. Drew has done a number of these kind of celebrity shows, and one little clip that I show in one of my classes is as an example of things that aren't as common off TV show is that he's meeting with Andy Dick about addiction problems. And he says, you know, I, I know I used to be your friend, but now I'm your doctor. Now I'm your psychiatrist. And right there, you, your friends can't become your therapist. Whoa, Katie, I know I'm your <laughs> podcast co-host, but right now I'm your therapist. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> it's just that just easy. forget all of our history. <laughs> yep. I think the fact that he pointed that out really changed the course of their relationship. <laughs> no, I, exactly. It's, it's absurd, but mm. I don't think that if you're not in the field, why would you know that? It's not like I would pick Absolutely. up detail specific nuances of professions that I know nothing about. And I think, I think, I mean, just that whole piece is kind of a widespread sort of maybe misunderstanding of therapy because I know I've even had people say, you know, someone I know or, or maybe even some of themselves, I'm having a really hard time with something right now. Could you talk to me about it? As your friend, I'm happy to talk to you about it, but I think they sometimes believe because I have some of this training that I'm going to have some sort of magical words for them that's going to help them. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's just given, you know, and maybe this, maybe an ethics episode is what we need too is because we're kind of delving into that a little bit mm. with kind of uh, dual relationships and things like that. It's, it's just really complicated. It is. And I think, you know, I was talking to actually a psychiatrist a little bit about what he thought. I said, do you ever think there could be good examples of reality shows in terms of disseminating information? So, This is a big thing in clinical psychology that we talk about and other mental health fields. It's great if you have the treatments, but if people don't know about them, then what good are they? Mm -hmm. And so people have taken steps. um, Psychotherapy Brown Bag, another Mm -hmm. link. I think we're up to 15 links today. At least. (laughs) They they make this stuff accessible. I mentioned, we already mentioned APA Division 12. It's what we're trying to do. But what the psychiatrist said is that even in those cases, It's difficult because there's a conflict of interest because the therapist on the reality show knows that it's being filmed Mm -hmm. and there is an agenda for drama and for TV. And it does that inadvertently shape the course of how they're approaching treatment. And I find it pretty hard to argue that that wouldn't Mm -hmm. impact treatment. So you're talking about shows that actually specifically show some sort of treatment, not just disseminate the information. Yeah, yeah, I should say. Yeah, so, yeah, I don't think I explained that quite right. So the idea was, is it possible that if the OCD project and you're showing exposure response prevention, that that gets the information out there and, and that's more effective than keeping it in obscure academic mm-hmm. journal articles and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And so what he was arguing is that even if it does spread that information more publicly, which is great, it's still hard to imagine that there won't be some influence in the TV setting. Yeah, I even wonder a little bit about, too, even if the therapist was able to maintain, you know, peer clean interventions. Mm-hmm. Well, and I don't know that much about being involved in media other than this wonderful podcast that we do. <laughs> is, uh, what, I mean, what does the TV studio do with it then? How do they cut it or edit it to make it maybe seem different than what actually happened? We, we don't 
edit much. Uh, no, we certainly don't any. have any third parties nope. interested in doing that. So, but if you're interested, <laughs> please contact us because I don't really know how to edit at all. So, so this is not—we have no conflict no. of interest because we don't have the knowledge nor um, people who want to <laughs> manipulate what we say. <laughs> the drama and goofs you get on the council cast—it's—it's it's just you get what you get over here. There's no surprises. So, okay, I—I I hate to cut us off, but I do every week. But we're. Overtime already. Uh, so maybe just a couple of take-home points for folks. I love take-home points, and I like to just leave people with a couple of pros of wisdom. So here, here's our new segment, Pros of Wisdom with Brandon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> clinical science. Uh, I mean, clinical, So there's two schools of thought. One that says we need to choose our therapies based on the Clinical science and empirically supported interventions are what we should be using. The other school says therapy is an art, and uh, I'm going to use the treatment that works best for this individual as an individual with the specific problems they're facing. And there's also research that kind of looks at so we have the kind of the spectrum of the level that at which different treatments work for different disorders and what treatments don't work and then even what treatments cause harm which may be a few that you've heard of include dare or boot camp sort of interventions or scared straight interventions um so yeah i think those are kind of our big take-home points for today and our other an, an extra a bonus take-home point if you will are you on are you on iTunes, Katie? Have you ever heard of iTunes? I before? am now because I heard they've got a great new podcast. <laughs> I heard on there. so too. Get on iTunes right now. I'm this is the most assertive I'll ever be with you. Lock, download <laughs> iTunes and get onto the search bar, type in Councilcast, C O U N S E L C A S T, and hit hit the subscribe button and leave a review. And you will win five internet points from us. And also more pearls of wisdom. <laughs> and, and more of my wonderful Brandon's Pearls of Wisdom closing segment. That's <laughs> hopefully going to become a regular part of the show. So seriously, though, we're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher now. We are done moving our podcasts around. Um, I think we're missing like 1,400 episodes on YouTube still. I need to get those <laughs> caught up. Uh, I think it's nice to have them up there for folks. Um, but yeah, it, it, we're done moving around. We're on Podbean now, which kind of automatically, or maybe not automatically, you set it up, so I don't know, uh, links over to iTunes and Stitcher. So if those are the apps that you use to listen to your podcast, punch us, punch us in there. That, subscribe and listen and get that good, good psychology knowledge right in your ears. And tell us if you have topics you want us to talk about or any feedback. We're happy to do that. We've actually had some great feedback from Absolutely. from some of our top listeners. Mm-hmm. Thank you to them because they've helped us to structure and I think really improve the, the flow of oh, the show. Oh, absolutely. Um, or if you just have questions, I, I would love to just answer just general questions that folks might have about anything. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, preferably about kind of the scope of this <laughs> podcast, uh, maybe something related to psychology or overall nerdy stuff. That'd be nice, uh, that but would be Brandon's great, but also open to other questions, I'll, I'll too. I'll answer any questions they have, so. Physics questions, chemistry I don't, questions. I have no training in chemistry, but I'll still give you a great answer, <laughs> because that's just... That's just how we roll on Councilcast. That's, that's how devoted Brandon is to giving the listeners what yes, they need. I'm here for you. You know what? Right now, I'm your I'm your your uh, podcast host. 
but right now I'm switching that role to being your question answerer. <laughs> so just as easy as that. Thank you, Doctor. You Dr. just have Drew. to say it once, and it's done. <laughs> and it's done. Thank you for listening. And if you're still if you're still listening all the way to this point, I'm really <laughs> amazed, and we really appreciate all the support. Check us out on Twitter. Retweet us. Uh, like, subscribe, follow. Facebook. Facebook too. us. Everything. We're ev- we're all over. We're all over the internet. You can just. Hardly go on Google without seeing Jedi Council these days. So thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.